1: Four point six billion.
2: The Earth forms.
1: Cambrian. Five hundred and forty-two million. Complex life explodes. Permian-Triassic. Two hundred and
2: fifty-one million.
1: Ninety percent of species
2: die. Cretaceous-Tertiary. Sixty-five million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. Fifty-five million. Primates appear. Two point three
1: million. Pleistocene. Two hundred thousand. Humans. Twenty thousand. Agricultural 250. revolution. Industrial revolution. Great animals. acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we feature stories and conversations about planetary change. I'm Miles Traer. On today's show, a conversation about a revolutionary new technique to study the oceans. Student producer Megan Shea spoke with Professor Ryan Kelly of the University of Washington. Kelly is trained as both an ecologist and a lawyer, and one of his research areas involves studying environmental DNA, or eDNA for short eDNA allows us to scoop up little more than a jar of seawater and infer a whole range of ecosystem characteristics. In time, this tool could have enormous implications for policymakers and others who simply need to know what lives where. However, eDNA is still in its early days, and in this conversation, Megan and Ryan explore the state of the science and what it might mean for our understanding of the natural world. Here's Megan and Ryan.
0: This is Ryan Kelly, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Washington in the School of Marine and Environmental Affairs.
2: Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today, Ryan.
0: Sure, yeah, thanks for having me, Megan.
2: Yeah, so I wanted to start thinking big picture historical. What is EDNA and environmental DNA, and how is it building on these other tools that have traditionally been used?
0: First, when we talk about environmental DNA, what we're talking about is is DNA that we're finding in the environment. So, so something like water, uh, fresh sea water, seawater, air, soil, uh, all, all of those would be sort of environmental samples that you could you could take, and you'll see DNA in cells that show up in those environments but really it's only recently we've come to realize that you don't need the whole organism right you don't need the whole microbe in your jar it turns out that the whale swimming by or the starfish on the sea on the sea floor they're giving off DNA too and so by taking a jar of water with a liter of water we actually get the DNA from all of those things in our jar of water so you don't have to squeeze an orca into the jar to know that the orca was there and that I just think is really cool
2: yeah, I agree that it is very, very cool that we do not have to squeeze any orcas.
0: <laughs> yeah, that would, you know, would be a violation of the Marine Mammal Protection Act, for one, and it just seems cruel.
2: So now that researchers have realized that there is this ability to detect organisms from water samples without getting the entire organism or an entire cell, what does eDNA sampling look like now?
0: Uh, it, it's, it's remarkably low-tech at first. We take a one-liter bottle, we, we fill it with water, and we bring it back to the lab. And then what we do is we, we filter it. Now, most cells in the world uh, are gonna be bacteria and viruses and um, you know, single-celled algae, especially in the marine environment. And so uh, we use a filter that lets the bacteria through for the most part and hangs on to only cells that are r- relatively big, so like animal cells or, or single-celled algae. And then uh, comes the interesting part. Molecular biology has come a long way in the last 30 years. This is a huge for-profit industry, particularly for medicine. And what this means is that there are idiot-proof kits to do almost everything. So you can use one of these idiot-proof kits to uh, do DNA extraction out of, the, uh, out of the paper filter. And you can pull all the DNA out of uh, those cells. And then you have your just purified DNA in a little vial and you're good to go. Um, so that's how you get the DNA. And then what you do with it um, and how you process it, that's, that's really the, the sort of magic of the environmental DNA technique. So you design these magical PCR primers, the, the, the little bits of DNA to sit down only on vertebrates. Those are organisms that we care about maybe because we have laws about them, maybe because they're endangered, maybe because they have big eyes and we just think they're cute. Uh, so, you, you know, we, we figure out what the sequence is that sort of designates vertebrates apart from everything else, and they sit down on just the vertebrates, and it's like a little copy machine that makes copies and copies and copies of just the vertebrate DNA and leaves all the other DNA alone. And that is pretty magical, for for one. That's remarkable. You know you're living in the future when you can take a jar of water and you can copy all the orca DNA out of it and then sequence it and know that an orca was swimming by. But we are not yet to the point where we can say, okay, there's one eel or there are five eels or that was one big orca or two baby orcas. Like We're not yet to the point that we can do that. And so I think that that sort of quantification is is really a key uh, frontier that we're, that we're working on right now. It's also a key to plugging this sort of pointy-headed science into policy application, right? Because one of my dreams, um, I, have, you know, I have a background in, in both in genetics and also in law, and so one of my dreams here is to move this this very esoteric nerdy science of DNA into something that actually works in the world that's gonna make a difference for people and might change how we do business in the world. And one key arena, I think, you know, that that this is relevant for is environmental impact reporting. Uh, It's that we have all of these laws that require people do an environmental impact report when they say they want to build a big condo building on the beach, or you want to build a new golf course or whatever. You have to say what the environmental impact of that is. But in point of fact, we have no way of measuring environmental impact. There's no, like, magic wand that you can wave and say, okay, how has the ecosystem changed between before I made my golf course and after I made my golf course? Biologists, for all, of, for all of the times we use the word ecosystem, we have no idea how to measure an ecosystem. And what's, that's one of the real attractive bits about environmental DNA to me is that you can look across uh, different trophic levels, who's eating whom. You can look at a thousand species all at once. This, is, this really is, is how to start to measure an ecosystem. It's really changed my idea of how the world works, right? We went from, you thought you were swimming in the ocean, and now I think about swimming in a soup of DNA, and we've always been swimming in a soup of DNA, and now it's like we just started noticing that and uh, realizing we could use that information to our advantage.
2: For me, one of the really interesting questions that you've started to get into, and you touched on this a little bit already, is... The idea that eDNA can be used to start to talk about ecosystems more holistically and even more than that about the human impacts on those ecosystems. And you just published a paper doing something really similar to that. So do you think you could talk about what your work in Puget Sound looking at areas with different levels of development was and what the big question there was and what you found?
0: Sure, of course, so uh, just to back up one one second, and which was in fact about uh, three or four years <laughs> worth of work uh, we, we we realized that we, th- we thought we could make this work. other people had started publishing on it uh, in about two thousand and twelve and and we realized that this was a this was going to be a thing, and it was going to happen fast and uh, so w- first, the first thing we did was we took it to the Monterey Bay Aquarium to see, okay, could we see all the fish in the tank that we knew were there? It was like a known. Uh, community and we wanted to see, are we right? Uh, and it worked pretty well. And then we took it out into the field in Monterey Bay, and we uh, took water samples alongside divers. They counted the fish. We looked for the fish in the DNA, and we got very, very similar answers, and we r- realized that uh, we were... We were getting a signal with the DNA that was very, very local. It was within meters. So then we wanted to put that to good use, and we brought, brought it to Puget Sound and joined an existing project that, that NIMFS had underway, the National Marine Fisheries Service, and our friends there, uh, Jamil Samouri and Oli Shelton, and Greg Williams, and others, um, they had an existing project looking at the effects of urbanization in upland watersheds on the nearshore eelgrass habitat here in Puget Sound. So uh, we went alongside them. They counted species uh, in a net that they caught, dragging it through eelgrass beds, and we uh, counted DNA in our jars of water, and uh, it, it worked pretty well. So that was the setup. And uh, what we found was really surprising. We, we were sure that we were going to see uh, that humanity was just destroying all of the biodiversity in the near shore. And we found um, pretty much the opposite of that. Um, instead, we saw that the number of species that were living in these uh, different habitats increased dramatically with uh, upland urbanization. So more urban habitats had more species. Uh, now, the wrinkle to that story was that um, even as richness went up, the number of different species went up. Um, we simultaneously saw that those those communities were more homogeneous, which that's hard to get your head around. How are you simultaneously richer, uh, more species diverse, but also more homogeneous? So uh, I, the metaphor that I, I've sort of been using for that is like, it's the difference between a small town downtown and a mall, where the small town downtown has fewer stores, but somehow they're all sort of different from one another. And the mall... Has a lot more stores, um, but they're all sort of the same. That <laughs> that is what we were seeing with the DNA in Puget Sound. So um, yeah, that that was the the, the short story there. Um, it, we saw we saw a lot of clams and mussels and bivalves, and these are things that generally are living in muddy environments that are sort of low energy. Um, that was what was really associated with the human dominated ecosystems. So. Yeah, there are more species, but they are they're muddy, mudflat bottom species, and uh, that might not be what you think of when you think of diversity in eelgrass bed. So uh, th- that's sort of interesting. Um, another way of thinking about this is maybe clams love cities. Uh, maybe we provide we humans provide a, a nutrient supplement to them that we're basically subsidizing their lifestyle in soft sediment habitats. But but it also could be that cities love clams. Like maybe instead of uh, the clams coming to the cities, that, that the human settlements grew up around places that were sort of uh, protected from the waves and likely to have more soft sediment habitat, right? So we don't know which way causation goes, but uh, we found that there were an awful lot of clams near the cities.
2: So it seems like EDNA and the huge amount of data it's producing, while in many ways it's able to answer these more specific questions, it's also opening up a lot of questions that maybe people hadn't even thought about in the first place. And while it's clarifying some things, it is also making... These scientific findings a lot more complicated, just in that there's so much information that points in so many different directions.
0: I want to address that because that's um, that's really an important thing that we've learned in this process is that we're developing a new technology, and like all new technology, we we're sort of we're trying to kick the tires on it. We're trying to see how it works and what its limits are, uh, and inevitably, people want to do what what we've done, like they want to compare these new results to old results to results of existing techniques quite reasonably right because we know how those techniques work and this one's new like how does it work so that all makes sense except that what we found is that it works in a totally different way like different data types and different gear types different ways of collecting information about the world are going to give you different answers every time. Philosophically, this is a really interesting question. All ways of sensing the world are biased and incomplete in some way. And what do you expect when you compare multiple methods that are all biased and incomplete? And my hope is that it's a little bit like Rumi and the, um, the metaphor of the elephant that people are in the dark and feeling this animal and trying to say what it feels like. You know, one person has the tail and one person has the trunk and one person has the the uh, the legs. And they all, they feel like totally different animals, right? But until you step back and see the whole thing, you don't know that it's an elephant. And and I think the, here the elephant is the ecosystem. Like, uh, you know, a fishing net and a barnacle settlement plate and marine mammal observing and eDNA are all going to give you wildly different slices of the same environment. And it's not until you figure out, oh, okay, these are all telling me different things in different ways, but they're all speaking to the same environment. I, I think that's, Um, that's sort of a a goal, is how to fold all these observations together and get a better sense of what's going on in the world.
2: From more of a policy perspective then, how do you envision eDNA becoming a tool that people look to And it is only one tool of many and it does have these sort of implicit biases?
0: Yeah, for one, I think it's hard to you know if somebody's been using a net for their whole lives to to survey the world it's hard to convince them that what's in their net isn't true one i think it it pays to be aware of that um, but to your question more specifically, um, the the best example of environmental DNA being used in real decisions and changing something real about the world is with the Asian carp in the Great Lakes Basin. So David Lodge and others um, from his lab have been for many years now using quantitative PCR, so just a, a similar technique, to look for two species of carp, fish, from Asia, originally um, from Asia, that are... Um, creating problems in the Great Lakes Basin, in the tributaries and, and what managers there, the USGS and the fisheries folks and others, what they don't want is these fish setting up shop in the Great Lakes. That would change things. So they've been spending a lot of time and money finding all of these things in the tributaries to make sure they don't get to the Great Lakes. Well, it turns out that the the DNA-based method is really sensitive and good for finding these things. So they started taking water samples and started saying, okay, here are the rivers you have fish in, here are the rivers you don't have fish in, uh, these are the ones you have to worry about, and maybe you want to close the Chicago River and close off uh, this, this entryway to the Great Lakes for uh, these couple of species of invasive carp. Um, so that's sort of one data point of how you convince people. Well, you demonstrate that you have a method that does something rational, shows you something about the world um, and how it works. And if you know its limits, then it's just as good a technique as technique as anything else.
2: I'm still thinking a a lot about the analogy you were giving with everyone using the different tools to think about an ecosystem and how it's not until you take a step back that you realize that everything is connected again. In a time when the oceans are changing or starting to change really rapidly due to ocean acidification and due to climate change, it seems like this is the moment in recent ocean history that we really do need to have a good understanding of all of these ecosystems. Do you think eDNA is ready to go and ready to be used widely enough that we'll be able to start to set some of these baselines and understand these ecosystems in time?
0: I think, yeah, absolutely. The question that the state of Washington and others have is, well, okay, we think ocean acidification is happening. Yes, this is a thing, but does it matter to us? Politics is local, and jurisdictions care about when their constituents are being hurt by a change. So what we're doing is we're taking eDNA out into the field in a new project starting in January, looking at a gradient of ocean acidification, and then uh, taking water samples, and we're going to look at thousands of different species and see how those communities of, of Marine communities marine ecosystems are changing uh, over a gradient in uh, in water chemistry and we hope that that's going to let, allow us to answer that question how is Washington changing with this um, and and we simultaneously hope that that's uh, going to matter for policymakers and we can uh, sort of tie those together pretty closely um, and and we hope that this is going to be the the sort of thing that eDNA is good for in the future. And this is really a a good test case of that in the field.
2: So on General Anthropocene, we talk a lot about human impacts through a wide variety of different lenses. And you've already talked a lot in this conversation about how eDNA is this burgeoning tool for starting to think about these questions of human impacts on ecosystems using huge amounts of data from small samples of water. Are there any of these bigger questions that you think five or 10 years down the road, we might have definitive answers to thanks to eDNA?
0: Whoa! That's a (laughs) you gotta I gotta think think really big, Um, really big. Yeah, really big. Well, I I will tell you that there's a there's an existing interest at NOAA um, and NASA in in funding a worldwide marine observation network, a a marine biological observation network that would be able to report on um, all sorts of things from microbes to whales, and that seems like the sort of big picture synthetic view of the world that we do get from remote sensing in terms of chemistry and physics that we don't get from biology and so in in that world it would be like like we know that there's an El Nino coming for example right from uh, water temperature records uh, w- and we can we could actually use such a worldwide network of sensors to then say, okay, well how are the communities changing? are there are there tuna migrating differently? Where are the sea turtles going? you know all we could get a sense of this interconnection of very big spaces uh, in the world across different, trophic levels and across different zones and across countries, uh, I mean, that that would be remarkable to have this ambient worldwide monitoring system for figuring out what's where and how it's changing. Um, and, you know, in a world that is changing rapidly, uh, perhaps, perhaps that is a goal worth going after.
2: So when you look back on the last several years of working with this technology, what's the feeling it's left you with?
0: I... Have been doing this for four or five years, I wake up every day and it is still completely amazing that I can take a glass of seawater and I can see all of these different species in it. That's completely amazing. And I hope that I never take that for granted. On the other hand, of course, we already knew that there were orcas and starfish and Puget Sound. Like we didn't need, we did, we didn't need a fancy technology to tell us that. And so Um, I I really, I am concerned with getting sort of outside of tool development and saying, okay, how do we plug this in to answer questions that otherwise could not be answered? And I think the, the, the ways that eDNA does that are either by being more sensitive than traditional methods, so like the Asian carp example, um, or by eliminating the depth for breadth trade-off that always happens with counting things in the world. Um, we can add more samples without adding a lot more cost and that makes it remarkably powerful and extensible. So um, trying to go from hey this is cool to hey this is cool but what does it do for us that, that we could never have done otherwise? And I think we pretty much are at the point where, where we're starting to ask that question. We don't know what it's going to be used for. I have some ideas, um, but I, I, the only thing that would surprise me five years from now is if I picked up a journal uh, or I picked up a newspaper that talked about eDNA work and, and that I wasn't surprised by what people were doing with it. Um, the world is a very diverse place, and I, I, like, it like It is remarkable the creativity that people have when you give them technology.
1: That was student producer Megan Shea and Professor Ryan Kelly of the University of Washington in the School of Marine and Environmental Affairs. Our show is produced by Leslie Chang, Mike Osborne, Jackson Roach, and me, Miles Traer. Special thanks also to Tom Hayden and Isha Salian. Our project is supported by Worldview Stanford and Stanford Earth. You can learn more about the podcast online at genanthro.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Gen Anthropocene. This season, we are releasing episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. If you like what we do, the best way you can support us is to leave a review or rating on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back on Tuesday with a new episode.